This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today on Dreamland, we have a guest who has never been with us before, I am astonished to say. Paul Eno is one of the first paranormal investigators of the early 1970s. He's an award-winning journalist. He's the author of nine books, including Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, which we are going to be talking about today and much, much more because we are looking right now or listening to or will be listening to in a moment one of the world's most experienced paranormal investigators. He and his son, Ben, have co-hosted the Boston Providence radio show Behind the Paranormal for over 10 years. And I'm going to be on that show in October sometime, probably the first Sunday in October. Now, welcome to Dreamland Fall. I'm so glad to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Whitley. It's a great honor to be with you. Uh, you were on our show once with Tom, Tom Reed. Uh long, long time ago, but um, we're going to have you back and we can't wait. I've been on practically every show there is a long, yeah. long time ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been I've been on most of them. Um, and I, I must be f- frank that I don't remember a lot of them because it's just too many. But anyway, thank you for having me on. And I'm sure I have a, had a great time because one of the things I always enjoy is doing shows. I have a great time and I guess one of the reasons the visitors probably dropped into my lap all of a sudden was that they figured, well, he's a real talkative guy. He's going to, he'll do this crazy thing. Okay. Uh, now you, let's talk a little bit about your early years, which are themselves. I mean, the whole, it's a whole stunning lifetime, but let's go way back to the seminary and to the start of things when, you were you were becoming a uh, well tell us about it well okay uh the beginnings of my interest in the paranormal were really long before i entered the seminary to become a priest uh that was when i was 7 years old and as you can imagine uh this was very difficult to talk about but um I was a witness at the age of seven to my father's suicide. And, of course, this was a a terrible milestone in life. And I was in a – now, he was a garden-variety Protestant. My mother was a Roman Catholic. My brother and I were raised Roman Catholics. In fact, he was already in the seminary at the time and became a priest in 1963. But I was in a very strict Catholic school with the Sisters of Mercy – if you can believe the name, and uh, they were either, to me, either saints or potential axe murderers. However, Sister Joel in second grade was my teacher, and I went to her. We we were being taught things like if you had a hot dog on Friday or committed suicide, you went straight to hell. And I said, what am I supposed to believe here? I mean, you know, my father was a wonderful man. She said, well, in so many words, God is kind of bigger than all that. And and that really, really got me through. So as the years went by, I decided myself to uh, study for the priesthood. 
1967, at the age of 14, when you could still do this, I entered the minor seminary, as it was called, high school level. And uh, if you got through the six-year program, which included high school and junior college, you could go on and, um, you know, and, and study further in the major seminary. But all along, I'm wondering, where is my father? So in 1970, I happened to see an article in the Hartford Current. This is Hartford, Connecticut, where I, uh, the area in which I grew up. And it was about a uh, an old man in the northeast corner of Connecticut in the town of Pomfret, who uh, since the 1940s had been exploring this old abandoned village and had all kinds of strange photographs that would, would come out. And uh, these were the days before uh, digital media. So there'd be, you know, splashes of light, streaks moving through the trees. And I, I said, this is an interesting place to test out my theory that ghosts, commonly known as earthbound spirits, are, in a good Catholic boy's mind, uh, souls in purgatory. Now, purgatory being uh, a construct that uh, the Western mind put together to explain, if you can't go to heaven uh, just yet, and you're not bad enough to go to hell, you go to be purged in this state, whatever it is, uh, until you're ready to go to heaven. So purgatory is kind of a place in between. I suppose in a way, almost like the ancient Jewish concept of Sheol. But anyway, I decided I'm going to test this out. And there are all sorts of strange things that supposedly happen there. Well, five other seminary students and I uh, got in touch with it, with this man. His name was Harry Chase. And off we went to Pomfret, Connecticut. And uh, we had some incredible experiences from day one. You walked in there, you would hear the... Uh, People talking, cows booing, dogs barking, as if it was a normal day for somebody else. And, um, and, and, and make a long story short, I very quickly decided that um, the whole dead people thing might be off. Maybe the old ideas weren't quite good enough. And, for example, uh, at the end of our second expedition uh, in 1971, we were all standing there bright, sunlit Sunday morning, and there was an, it felt sound like an ox cart coming down this old path. And we figured, I don't know, maybe somebody drives teams as a hobby. Or and along came this thing. You could hear the hoofbeats of the oxen or horses. You could hear the wooden wheels of the cart, but you couldn't see it. It was no more than about 25 feet from us. And uh, we could hear a guy cracking a whip and yelling, yeah, this sort of thing. And in ensuing years, I found out that I was related to these people. The Eno, it doesn't sound like it, but it's an old Yankee family. And uh, this this was the Randall and Higginbottom families who had lived in this place. And I think if I knew then what I think I knew now, I, I would be able to perhaps change uh, and make Mr. Randall have a very interesting day by interacting with that phenomenon. And um, How fascinating. How would, well, you know, wait a minute, free dreamlanders. I have a wonderful moment in your life and I know you love it because you don't ever subscribe to the show. So you must love these. We'll be right back. We're talking to Paul Eno, his website 
BehindTheParanormal.com, his new book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God, whom we will get to later. We, we, um, you mentioned before we stop or earlier on your fascination with the fact that it was a mortal sin to eat a hot dog on Friday. I was also a little Catholic boy, and I used to sneak out and eat hot dogs on Friday so that I would be in mortal sin and be condemned to hell. The nuns that I was with made heaven sound so fantastically dull that if I had a choice, I was going to definitely take hell. So anyway, but let's let's get on uh, now. We're sure. Okay. One thing I want to say about the Pomfret case, Paul, is I also have had an experience of hearing a wagon that you couldn't see, and I ended up moments later plunged back in time to a, exactly to. To, uh, sometime in the 1880s, oddly enough, this experience happened across the street from where Nikola Tesla's lab would have been in the 1880s hmm. and uh, in Manhattan. And my listeners have know this story. They, I've told it more than once. But uh, for those listeners who don't know, suffice to say that it seems that movement through time is possible. And was that related to what happened at, in Pomfret? Well, precisely, Whitley. I think what the, the, what really was uh, striking here was that you you go into these things as a neophyte, assuming that the old ideas are correct. And the first thing I'd started to notice in day one here was that uh, it it seemed that we're dealing more with time than with death. And what is time? I mean, in, in ensuing decades, uh, I and then my son and I have come to the conclusion that of course uh, the the quantum approach the multi the multi multiple worlds interpretation or Everett universe is, is a far more interesting way to, to describe the paranormal than dead people we've had on our show eminent names such as uh, Fred Allen Wolf Dr Fred Allen Wolf who pretty much agreed with us so yeah, I know time Dr Wolf's work of course yeah so time, no, no, apparently... It, it, you also mentioned in your book, Einstein's comment that time doesn't exist. Well, special relativity implies very strongly that, all time, that there is no past, there is no future. It's a function of our consciousness. Because we're not there yet from an evolutionary point of view in order to apprehend it all. And we, when we start to apprehend it all, and this is what I started to see when working in a pastoral capacity at St. Lawrence State Hospital near near my seminary in upstate New York. Was the people... well, hold on a minute. Let's go back to yeah. there. Okay, we're now we're at not the, the high school level seminary, but you're you're now in the full scale seminary and you have a particular mentor, as I recall. Yes, uh, that was in the book. I call him Wheeler, Father Lawrence Wheeler. Was Father Lawrence, but I, his last name he recently passed, and I didn't want his family to get upset. So, uh, yeah. each diocese or or division of the Roman Catholic Church, regional division headed by a bishop, has um, an exorcist. 
Now, people think that priests uh, are trained in the paranormal. They are not, as a rule. Certain ones are chosen. And I think from what he told me, it would have been me, in my case, uh, to receive training in the paranormal or or their narrow view of it and uh, go on to be the go-to person in the diocese for a parish priest who may have somebody who has uh, their furniture dancing around the living room, that that sort of thing. And uh, Let's just hold on a minute. Their narrow view of it. Can you expand on exactly what their narrow view of it is? And that that'll be sure. a baseline here. The, uh, the the view of the pretty much the Roman Catholic Church is uh, they're very iffy on the idea of ghosts. But uh, as one exorcist uh, told me, I don't believe in ghosts. I believe in demons. And it's not a far cry from what the evangelicals say that everything is demonic. Okay, so uh, you're not supposed to do the medium thing. Uh, you're supposed to be very, very cautious, with, uh, not a bad idea uh, in approaching anything that's paranormal, and uh, don't trust anything, and uh, don't think you're talking to dead people because they don't believe that you are. And the whole and, and to get into time and uh, simultaneity of time is is really quite a theological exercise, but, but that, in my experience, did not enter into it. So it's a very narrow uh, view that sees demons as servants of satan literally rather you know rather than anything else and it's um it is it is very narrow because the interpretations are 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 very narrow in your view well before i ask this this big sort of bridge question about evil i'm going to ask you what your view of evil is but i want to before i go there Let's talk a little bit about Father Lawrence and your relationship with him. And let's talk about the first thing that happened. That There's some phenomenal stories about what happened when you and Father Lawrence were working together. Well, I uh, this is at Wadhams Hall Seminary in upstate New York. Now, I graduated from St. Thomas Seminary, the minor seminary, and going on to the last two years of college. And at the time, everybody had to study philosophy. So the only major offer there was philosophy. So I was in my last two years of college, and I noticed a, a, a very quiet priest who lived at the seminary but did not teach. And you'd see him sort of gliding down the hallway, and he had this uh, sort of buzzy voice that was kind of unique. And <clears throat> at one point, about a month and a half after I arrived, he called me to his room. And uh, I you know, didn't know him at all. And he said, I understand you've been working with Ed Lorraine Warren, uh, <clears throat> who are well known from the Conjuring films and all this sort of thing. And I said, yeah, yes, Father, I have. And he apparently liked their work. They adhered very strictly to the, the narrow Roman Catholic viewers, or said they did anyway. And um, we had, a several, had several conversations. And it turned out that he was the Catholic chaplain at the St. Lawrence State Hospital, just down the road from us. We were right on the St. Lawrence River, Augensburg, New York. And he was uh, um, also, apparently, as I found out later, the exorcist for the Diocese of Augensburg. And while he was there doing the Catholic chaplain thing, uh, he was also uh, on deck if uh, the doctors and hospital staff were standing in a room and stuff started flying off shelves on the other side or their carts started to roll by themselves, you know, th- things that were not attributable to any psychosis 
with which the patient had been diagnosed. So he asked if I would be willing to assist him. And uh, the rest is uh, quite the story you referred to. The first incident was a girl named Barbara, and she was under the age of, she was 17. So uh, she, she, we had, we judged that, or he judged that an exorcism was necessary because poltergeist phenomena were occurring. Uh, blankets would be torn off her bed. There would be pounding on the walls. It got to the point where they had to move her to a separate room by herself so didn't the other patients wouldn't get upset. So <clears throat> this is on October of 73. And uh, there, I don't know if you want me to go into the case right now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I th- I'm fascinated. I hope my, my, my audience is too. Uh, yeah, let's yeah. definitely go into the case right now. And remember, I'd never seen anything like this before, but there were, um, the, the, it was judged that an, ex- an exorcism was needed, which, which meant following the, the Roman ritual of exorcism, which includes, it's, it's a very, very long prayer. It can take several hours. And it includes three actual exorcism prayers. Well, here we were in this room, and the poor girl was 17. A parental signature was required, and uh, her mother was in worse shape than she was, you know, drug addicted, very, very bad time in the north country of New York economically. A lot of the farms were being foreclosed on. There were a lot of patients, inpatients and outpatients here who had uh, drug addictions, things of this kind. And so, Barbara, uh, we began over several days, the exorcism prayers, the most dramatic things that happened were at one point, uh, they said, now, let me tell you who was there. There was Father Lawrence, myself. There was a doctor, two nurses. I should have said a doctor, a nurse, and two attendants, one of whom was me. And the other one was a guy named Leonard who actually worked at the hospital. And uh, so... Now tell it, wait a minute. Uh Tell us a little bit about more about Barbara. What what was her diagnosis, for example? Okay, uh, she was diagnosed uh, with schizophrenia. She had a drug addiction. She was in treatment for that, and um, I didn't see her medical record. I wasn't allowed to. But no, there were there were not. things. But but there were things that w- that would happen. For example, at one point I mean, she was in a wheelchair, and at one point she rose out of the wheelchair, not using her legs. She was still in a seated position. And Leonard and I actually had to, to reach up and push her back down into the chair. You actually, you were there. Yeah, I was there. I, well, I, I actually had to, to do Listen, uh, we're going to, we before we get into this story in more detail, Free Dreamlanders, we're going to take a little break right here. We're talking to Paul Eno. His website Behind, not beyond, behind the paranormal.com. There is a weekly radio show. Can we listen to it on the website? If we're not in the the area? Uh, Right, that's true. You can, uh, at behind the paranormal.com in the archives, there are over 1,100 hours of shows and special shows that we've done. Uh, If you're not in the Boston Providence area, it's it's carried live on tunein.com and the paranormal radio app from Talk Stream Live. Oh, great. Okay, and the new book is Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God. And we were 
sort of uh, poltergeisting away here, just getting ready to. But uh, she lifts out of the wheelchair. Now, you put your hands on her, you push her back down into it. How did that feel? It was very electrical. You know, I, I've always, and some people don't, this doesn't happen to, but I've always noticed a tremendous electrical field in the presence of these things. It kind of washes over your body. And and uh, I was feeling that the whole time this was going on. And when I touched her, there was a very small static electricity charge. Pushed it, pushed her back down. Leonard was on the other side. And it's at one point in the third exorcism, when it was done a third time, uh, a few days later, the nurses had to tie her into the chair so she wouldn't float away. And, you know, with, with, with uh, soft uh, towels and sheets and things, they just use those to tie. Now, so This um, is just absolutely fascinating. I mean, you're well, talking I always, about uh, yeah. the impossible. Of well, course, exactly. you've lived with it for so long, it's no big deal for you. But, well, it was then. Well, of I mean, course here it I mean, was. I mean, I'm 20 years old, young seminary student, and... Uh, but I got the impression that something was not right, and it had it was it was what we were doing. I was getting the impression that this thing was feeding on what we were doing. The uh, exorcism prayer is very commanding. There are several times uh, when the priest uh, is told to to demand the name of the demon, and uh, I, I I we we would have long talks father lawrence and i after each session uh, back at the seminary and he would say i would say father you know these are demons for crying out loud how do you know they're telling the truth when they tell you their name and he said well well they're bound by the the power of christ to tell the name so yeah i i that sounded okay to me and uh, but i just got the impression that we we were helping it not hurting it and you know i'm 20 year old seminary student you know like they're going to listen to me so it just, um, everything was off, just like it had been a pomfret. The old ideas that did, didn't seem to work. But I say, it must be me. I must have some kind of issue with something for me to not believe what everybody else believes. So um, as, as time went by, probably the scariest, people ask me, what's the scariest thing that ever happened to me in the paranormal? And it had to be during this uh, Barber case, which, as I say, was the first exorcism I had ever participated in. And at one point, it did say its name. And she and Barbara told us that the, the name was Chal, which I assume is spelled C-H-A-L-L. I've never seen it anywhere before or since. And the father, the father said, you know, go look it up. So I spent a lot of time in the library days before the Internet here. So I, I found a family, uh, a guy that taught at Harvard, taught psychology and his name was Chow. He was from India, but I, I don't know. That's all I found. So at one point he demanded the name and a voice came out of her that I had never heard anything like it before. And it said Chow. And in my mind, I didn't give anything. I just, in my mind, I said, yeah, right. Cause I didn't trust this. Thing. The thing somehow perceived what I was saying and out it comes with with a a sentence that the doctor had to look it up because he was the only, only one allowed to record this. And it turned out it was in perfect melee, the melee language. And uh, 
I, I, I didn't know what it said until the end of the year. And Father Lawrence called me in uh, just before we went home for the summer that the following year, which was 74. And he said, um, I, I, I can't let you go home without telling you what this said. Uh, and he said, when we translated it, it said, I, and this is difficult. I was there when your father killed himself. I told him to do it, quote unquote. So I don't know what Father Lawrence expected me to do, whether leave this field and just keep my nose in my books and keep studying theology. But um, in, in a way, it made me more determined than ever to fight these things and, and to get to know what they really are. And that somehow I still didn't think they were demons. So it was that that was that they was are, a, a landmark. I, I deal with them in my life all the time. I, the, I, the, the, there are all kinds of different shadings, but the particularly negative ones are so deceptive. They're masters of deception. And on that note, free dreamlanders, do not be deceived. These commercials are important. Definitely do what we say and you will be so very happy. We're talking to Paul Eno. Behindtheparanormal.com is his website. You can listen to his radio show, 1100 hours of it on that website. Uh, it's also on TuneIn Radio and other places. Uh, what's the show called, Paul? Uh, it's called Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Okay. And so we're talking now about the paranormal and his book, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God. Now... We are in a situation here where this young woman, obviously struggling, is has said these words and they have a relevance to you that's very sinister. And as I said a moment ago, I'm very familiar with this type of deception. Uh, it's extremely evil. And I've had just recently, in recent months, I've had some spectacular examples of it in my life. How did you cope with this? You're told this, and then you're sent home for the summer. How hard well, that must have been. It was well. Fortunately, I had a, a, another uh, classmate uh, who was going as far as Vermont. I dropped him off. I couldn't. I couldn't tell him about this, but just just having him, he was a good friend. Uh, was very very encouraging. Uh, at the time that the sentence was spoken. Had that been in English, I probably would have ended up a patient at this place myself. Uh, <clears throat> you know, th this thing said it was there. You know, I was a terrified seven-year-old boy in a cold January evening just standing over my father. It, it was just, you know, it, it was, but, but it really gave me the impression that these things were feeding on this. Um, yeah, that it was actually wanted you to experience these emotions. Pushing buttons. Pushing buttons, precisely. Yeah. Uh, so 
uh, so is really pushing your buttons. How could it, was it there, do you think? Or if not, then how could it have known about this? Well, it was very confusing until the end of the 1970s when I started running into people who were seeing ghosts of themselves, people who were seeing ghosts of people who hadn't died yet. Uh, phantom buildings that were there one day and gone the next. And it began to expand what I believed was happening here in the paranormal, that uh, it was, as we discussed earlier, more to do with time than with death and with uh, the ability to be in several worlds at the same time. Again, going back to quantum mechanics and the multiple worlds interpretation, the... uh, what we've found, and, and other cases in the book uh, will, to me, lend credence to this idea, was that there are mul- multiple parallel worlds, perhaps an infinite number, in which there are many, many versions of us. We may have died in some, not in others. And there is every possible outcome of uh, the whole thing of, you know, if I were to drop uh, my phone on the floor right now, I might need a new phone. Uh, but I've also created another world in which I dropped the phone. The one in which I did not drop the phone keeps keeps going unchanged. So uh, th- this kind of began to take hold by the end of the 70s. And so this thing was uh, a multiversal creature, as are we. It's just the more aware of that that we are, other lives and other facets of ourselves, the more likely they're going to fill our pockets with antipsychotic drugs and send us on our way. And whereas we're probably normal, the people prescribing the meds are, are less, maybe less so. So I think this thing was a multiversal creature that experienced the simultaneity of time, was able to access <clears throat> a point, an, an, an identity point, or an overwash point. These are words my son and I have actually had to invent. There's a glossary in the beginning of the book you mentioned dancing past the graveyard that, that, that defines some of these just so we can talk about them. So I think this is a multiversal creature that had some control over its awareness in various times and places. That's how it knew. And then the question becomes, why? Why is this happening this way? Because, boy, are you not the only person who's been attacked like this? I mean, I'm talking, in my case, it, it happens quite frequently. I also yeah. have a good side, which my listeners know all about, to my experiences. But these attacks are are not uh, uncommon. And uh, what, what, when you say feed, what do you mean by feed on it? I wish I could put a more specific finger on it, but it seems that anything that divides that is negative, that, uh, and especially divides people, uh, is um, something that they will feed upon. Anything that unites uh, will repel them. Ben and I, where I used to go charging into these cases with, you know, crosses, holy water, or whatever religion the people happen to be, sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't work. Same thing with these exorcisms. And so what... um, I came to the conclusion was with the simplest approach is better. Ben and I call it the Peter Pan theory. Think happy thoughts. Anything that's positive, a positive faith, humor, 
I once got rid of the worst poltergeist I ever dealt with by using a joke book. Uh, not uh, something I'd generally recommend, but in this case it worked. Um, and so these things are life forms, multiversal life forms, you know, again, as are we, who will go from world to world to eat. That's all That's all this is about. Uh, our our folklore has, has uh, chalked them up as servants of Satan, and they fill the bill, but uh, I, I don't think that in their essence – they're anything more than life forms, cosmic mosquitoes, if you will, who will suck the life out of us in the sense of negative energy. When we uh, advise families, and even if we're all wet, that this is good advice for any family to come together, stand together, tell tell your loved ones that you that you love them now. Don't wait; tomorrow could be too late. When this positivity comes in, every time. These things are repelled. And uh, so I would take a very, I would have taken a very different approach to Barbara's case had I uh, known then what I think I know now. So I think that these are, they're just hungry and hostile life forms. So these, the thing is fascinating about the negative entities is that they are so aggressive. And is there, now you say that they're not demons, in your opinion. Well, well, th- 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 they that might as well be. That, yeah, they might as well be. But remember, um, in our opinion, we put labels on things that we can understand. And a demon has all kinds of baggage, like a servant of Satan. You know, and maybe they, are, maybe we're all wrong. But I think that you have to look beyond the label into something that maybe we don't understand. And uh, to to see their, their modus operandi and, and to to see what they do. As a matter of fact, we're working with a behavioral scientist right now to try and uh, perhaps uh, do a book on the behavior of these parasites, which which we have narrowed down to about nine different species. Uh, they are all intelligent. They all learn. They seem to have a culture. At times, there are seem to be they seem to have leadership uh they start with um what we call the wise not wise in any sense that's good to us uh moving all the way down to the tricksters and the brats who are two-dimensional thinkers and maybe work alone others seem to work um, in uh, packs farming for lack of a, a better term families and individuals maybe for generations uh, and it, it's really a, a, an entirely different world, and I've encountered them as apparently you have, Whitley, uh, yeah, in many, many times, times in many places. Yeah, they're they're a big part of my life. I'm I, I live with this. I want to ask you this: What about physicality? Because I've had three of them became were entirely physical in my life, and they were not human beings in any way, shape, or form. But they yeah. looked, they looked human, sort of. But, but they had they had the capacity to enter your mind. They could not speak. I saw two of them, or, or rather one of them, walk into a drugstore, completely control the minds of all the people in the drugstore, steal, rob the place. I mean, just load up with smoking materials and walk right out of the store, walked right past me with this sinister expression on his face because he knew I could see him. I could see it. What in the hell was going on there, Paul? Do you have any idea? 
uh, yeah, well, well, my earliest experience of, of the physicality of these things made me wonder, are we really dealing with spirits, which are by definition non-corporeal? And that, that went all the way from the, the Pomfret case with the physical experiences of the ox, drive, ox cart driver and all sorts of other things that happened we don't have time to discuss, all the way up to <clears throat> a few years later at the uh, the Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974, which much has been made of on TV lately, uh, the, the the Monday night of the case, Ed and Lorraine Warren had gone off to do some TV interview. I was in the house with the family. And out from the little girl's room and the, the kitchen, uh, <clears throat> there came these four entities. Now, from the minute I stepped foot in there, I got the impression there were four entities involved here. At the time, I still thought they were demons. We were working with a priest. We were trying to get permission to do, from the local bishop to do an exorcism, which never came. And the four of these things came down the hallway. One of them came right in front of me, and the little girl, Marcy, was behind me. I was trying to protect her. This thing came right up to me. You could, you could, you could see kind of a gauzy structure. And I just, I, I, this is where I learned you don't get annoyed, fearful, or angry in the face of these things because they feed on it, parasites. So I, I just unconsciously kind of tried to push it away with my shoulder. And it pushed back. And then it got around me and threw the little girl across the room. And the, this thing was a physical structure. <laughs> let's, let's hold on. Hold on. Uh- you know, the, you're used to this, talking about this. We're not. Well, so yeah. it got around me and threw the little girl across the room. Could you explain a little bit more about what that was like and what happened to the little girl and how she felt? Well, she was okay, but she was 10 years old. And I don't know if, anybody, if people are familiar with this case. There's a book about it, and it was on the Travel Channel, uh, September of twenty. Uh, there was a documentary about the Warrens. Yeah, a, a lot of us may be familiar yeah. with the case, but none yeah. of us have heard a firsthand witness talking personally right, right. about it right now, especially not I'm, an expert like you. So please tell us. I'm one of the few left. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, the entire scene was, as I say, I believe it was demonic. These things, uh, the, the, there were things flying around the house at one point. Three firefighters and three policemen and I stood there, watched the refrigerator and the kitchen levitate. But in, on this particular thing, Monday night, it, it, it you know, Whitley, one of the, the, the most difficult things is, is not facing the phenomena. It's having your belief system shattered. Oh, that's, all that's have the is, big thing. That's belief. why the scientific community yeah. is going crazy about this stuff. They, they right. can't handle it because it's their belief system. It's, yeah, exactly. their belief system blows up in their faces more completely than any other belief system in history, because it is the most narrow belief system human beings have ever developed. And also, yeah. ironically, the most successful in the sense yeah. that we have an enormous amount of gifts from science. We would not even be talking together like this, let alone on a video that anyone in the world can see without science. But science right. is also deeply wrong about the nature of the world. No, it's, it's, it's materialistic, and materialism is dying. It's dying. You know, it, 
And but some for some, do you think your dad's suicide and seeing that kind of shattered the 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 n normal world? It, it broke the cosmic egg for you. Well, you might say that, yeah. You know, the the most important thing for a child is to feel secure. Yeah. And w when this happens, it is the farthest thing from secure. You know, death. Uh, which today I don't, I don't believe there is any such thing in any real sense because of the simultaneity. However, at the time, you know, it was, um, you, you know, I, I, I don't really have to explain any further. No, I know very well what you felt, and the reason is very simple. My wife had the same experience at the age of seven when her mother committed suicide, so I know in detail. I didn't know that about Anne. Oh, yes, and it shattered the cosmic egg for Anne, too. Anne became... Wow the most, the most skilled person in terms of dealing with and living an afterlife than I've ever known or even heard of. But let's, let's go back now, though, uh, to, this, to this question of the, the shattering of your, of your expectations. You know, um, uh, there was a book written, uh, a, a study done, about close encounter witnesses and the only thing that was consistent in their lives about the witnesses was uh, the, the fact that something traumatic had happened to them in their childhood. And I have to ask you now, are there any, have you had close encounter experiences that you would characterize like the experiencers do as looking like alien contact? And we're going to talk a little bit more because we're going to get some interesting ideas about alien contact in a few minutes. But what do you think? Have well, you had any? I'll tell you, Whitley, I just described one. Because when these things came out of there and that one faced me, this thing was alien. That's the best word I can use. And it's funny because people see my seminary background and they must think, oh, you must think all aliens are demons. I said, actually, I've come to believe pretty much the opposite, that, that, that things we consider demons are actually aliens in a broad sense of the term. I don't know if they're from other planets. I don't know what that even means, if this multiverse thing is true. Uh, but these things felt completely other. And I would say that was my first encounter. Now, we were very often, Ben and I are, invited to speak at the UFO conventions far more than paranormal conventions because when it comes to the latter, we're um, not good for business because we question all their theories. But I find the uh, generally the, the UFO people are somewhat uh, more open and uh, intellectually pretty good folks. So, um, but, but, but uh, you know, I, I was asked if I was an experiencer. In other words, had I been abducted? Uh, had I had a close encounter with uh, some of these, something that, that leaped out of a UFO, and I would have to say no. But as I, as people would read my books and say, you are absolutely an experiencer. And uh, today, I, yeah, and today I, I'm uh, the paranormal consultant to the uh, uh, ERT, the Experience and Resource Team of MUFON, one of several, and I'm honored yes. by that. But uh, 
they, they, uh, I, so yeah, I'm definitely an experiencer. Yeah, MUFON has been opening up for years. I think Kathleen Martin has had an enormous amount of influence. She's been yeah, on the show great. many times. And, mm -hmm. you know, I want to just, I was going to bring this up. It's one of her stories uh, that, from from one of her books. Oh, and the book I mentioned before, it's Ken Ring's uh, book, The Omega Project. That I, uh, I, that was where that study appeared. And Anne and I financed the study show. I should certainly remember it. In any case, uh, uh, Kathleen Marden tells a story about a man who, was um, he had a small private airport, and he found he could attract UFOs to it. I'm but, familiar with that case. Yeah. yeah well, tell us. Well, let me set the scene, and then we can. T I, I'll ask you what you know about it. Um, he ended up with what looked like little aliens in his hangar, and then uh, he ended up shooting one of them in the bedroom, and it haunted him after that. Do you have anything more about that case if you've studied it? Yeah, well, I don't want to step on Kathy's toes, but uh, she no, shared no. some information. She's talked and about photos. It on the show before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th this is in Texas, in an area that we know as as uh, sort of a uh, the Woodville Triangle, uh, near near the big thicket with all kinds of Bigfoot and cryptid sightings, and uh, there were actually photographs. That the man was the airport administrator, and he actually took a photo of a UFO that landed on the runway. Uh, he and he died under mysterious circumstances. He was not an old man by any means. And um, we have, kind of, my son and I have kind of hesitated to get, to go down there and get too involved in it because we want to get a, a beat on what exactly is happening here. Uh, the, um, there were a number of photos that he took of craft in the sky and things of this kind, uh, but the, the the danger to life and limbs seemed to be real there, and we don't know at this point quite who was causing that. But uh, yeah, the, there were a, alien uh, incursions in, into his bedroom, and I heard about the shooting incident. So yeah, it's definitely the same case. Yeah, and it, it yeah, and you, you say you don't know quite what was going on there, quite who was responsible. Uh, what, can you unpack that just a bit? Well, in other words, were people being wasted by aliens or by uh, the, the government or something that looks like the government? You know, that's it's who's behind that these things. looks like the government. Believe me, I'm very yeah. familiar with that. And it is okay, not, yeah. you know, they, they, there's this huge thing about the government having a huge secret presence and everything. But I know the difference between, I know an awful lot about this, frankly. And mm -hmm. there is something out there that can look like the government that is not, in fact, the government. Indeed. Yeah, we run into our specialty is uh, I don't want to get too far off the field here, but flap areas, as we call them, which are areas of intense paranormal activity of many kinds, not traditionally associated with one another. And we always, always run into the military or something that looks like the military. And I'm talking about six areas. At this point, when you say, well, okay, free Dreamlanders. I have bad news and bad news. Actually, the bad news is that it's time for you to say goodbye, and the even worse news is 
I hate to see you go. Why don't you subscribe to the site? And we can do this together every week. And uh, we need you to support it, as you know. We'll see you next week. Okay, let's keep right on keeping on for our subscribers. Uh, you were just talking about nine different areas. Can you expand on that? Oh, well, six, six areas and, oh, and six. nine different kinds of nine different kinds of parasites. Oh, I see. If, yeah, yeah. But uh, the six areas. Uh, one of the most remarkable is uh, in Pennsylvania, and we start. It's a new case for us because it only started twenty sixteen. Uh, we uh, we generally work on cases for years, and uh, that's a new one. So we've been down there with uh, people who some people may have heard of, um, uh, Alexander Petikoff, uh, who was a young filmmaker. He's my son Ben's age. Uh, Shane Searway of TrueGhost.com, who was a, an amazing guy when it comes to working with people with negative activities. And uh, Chuck Credo from Seco Saucers of New England. And we're a bunch of New Englanders who, who uh, headed down there. And we uh, got to the point where we were having neighborhood meetings. And 30 to 35 people would show up, all of whom had seen strange lights in the sky and Bigfoot. I myself had a Bigfoot encounter on the 16th of September, 2016, um, which is quite uh, quite amazing. Tell us about it. I don't. Is that in the book? I didn't see it. No, that, that's in a different book. <laughs> in a different book. Yeah, well, you've got yeah, a few yeah. books out there, folks. And listen, I have to tell you, I have to compliment Paul on his writing style. It is This is a really delightful book, well done. And it is also deeply informative. And, and that's unusual that a book would be written in such a way. I wish I could write like this, actually. A book, it you know, it has a, a light touch. It's not a, 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 a plow through read at all. And yet it's very complex and deep at the same time. It's a wonderful job. Well, thank you, Whitley. As Mark Twain said, I can live six months on one good compliment. But, uh, <laughs> but as far as um, yeah, that, that particular case, uh, if people want to go to YouTube, uh, the there's a Paul and uh, behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben, you know, YouTube channel, and they will find the video that uh, I captured on uh, May 16th, uh, 2019. I'm sorry, May 25th, 2019. Uh, we happen to be, uh, we, have, we have a system we use to stake things out and record what happens. But uh, Shane had said he felt we should skywatch that night. Sure enough, they, we were sitting there and uh, something came out from behind the trees. It was in the sky and I got the whole thing on video. It seemed to be a um, what 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 uh, Jenny Randalls might call a time storm. It was in the sky. A solid object seemed to come out of it. We, we got almost three minutes of this on video, and uh, really quite a remarkable uh, uh, UFO sighting. And uh, local people had kind of took it in stride. Uh, and we did a two-hour special show on this uh, the next day, live from, from there, which was a Sunday. And that's on the website as well, uh, behindtheparanormal.com in the archives. So uh, everything has happened there. Uh, military involvement has involved low-flying aircraft, C-130s, dropping strange uh, silvery material over the area. We've yet to figure out what that's about. 
and well, we're still working on it. Uh, probably our oldest flapper rate case right now is in Connecticut, the Litchfield Triangle, as we call it. Uh, it reminded me a bit of Skinwalker Ranch because of the things that were happening there. It started, uh, it was centered in a house uh, in Torrington, Connecticut, and the woman had just read my 2002 book, uh, Footsteps, in, I should say, Footsteps in the Attic, and uh, that introduced the multiverse theory. So that's the only thing that explains the stuff we've seen here. For example, the, the family would sit in the living room and watch legs hanging from the ceiling, walking as though on a, on a surface that didn't exist in our world. But it did exist then, somewhere, I'm sure. Somewhere or somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we're, when ben, we're, we're dealing with entities from other dimensions, other I mean, other universes, I should say. Yeah, in many cases, they're, they're just people from other universes. In, in the universes where it's still what we would consider the past, again, uh, everything seems to be simultaneous, as special relativity suggests. There is no past, there is no future, only the eternal now. And But we don't experience it that way. That's why we get so boggled by it. That's the way we look at it anyway. So uh, you know, when you see uh, Aunt Gertrude skipping down the street two years after her funeral, it's because you're you're at an intersect point where the world, a world in which she never died, is is a, you're sharing the awareness of that for just, maybe just a moment or whatever. Now, there, there is communication sometimes, as some of the cases in the book we're talking about will, will illustrate, uh, in worlds where the laws of physics are different, uh, and uh, it's not considered weird to talk to the uh, neighbors, as one guy named Gilbert told me when I was communicating with him. Uh, or neighbors, as he pronounced it, and um, so so I mean, it's, it's anything and everything is out there, and the more positivity we bring into our own lives, it, it'll it'll echo farther out and and do some good for other aspects of ourselves and other people. So that's kind of beyond the scope of what we've been saying. Now, let me ask you this: You talk a bit in the book about Jesus and the demons he was fighting. What, in your estimation, was he fighting? What was actually happening? Yeah, well, not having been there personally, uh, and, and remember, I, I am no great fan of the guy I've named after, St. Paul, because there, there were many different flavors of Christianity, and then he got hold of it. And by the, by the time the Gospels were written, they all had his theology, which was really a, a pagan theology. Yep, he was a uh, Roman, overlay. very much a Roman, and uh, uh, he he grew up in uh, in 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 a pagan faith. Uh, he was, and so he basically sort of paganized and the 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 teachings of Jesus and turned him into a pagan god. You know, you're one of the few people I've ever heard say that, but I agree. I mean, I wrote a book called up... Jesus: A New Vision that lays all this out. I'm very familiar with this story. I'll have to check that out. But he grew up in Tarsus, <clears throat> which was a, a crossroads, uh, trading and ideas and philosophies. And uh, by some odd coincidence, a god named Attis was worshipped there. It was a young guy, young god, uh, crucified on a tree. Uh, who was commemorated with bread and wine, who people actually believe that was as a body and blood. 
because uh, Paul's theology is so wildly un-Jewish, wildly un-Hebraic, and uh, I, I see very little connection between Judaism and Christianity because of that. Right. So, so anyway, but, but but that that being said, um, I, I just um, think that that, that 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 colored a lot of the Gospels that were written. But Jesus encounters these entities here and there. And it's interesting that the Gospels do make a distinction between people who are just nuts and people who are possessed. That's right. They talk often about the insane in the Gospels. Yeah, right. Uh, but in the land of the Gadarenes, uh, for example, I think I, I cite that in the book, uh, there was a, a man possessed and Jesus sent the demon demons into a herd of pigs who uh, went charging down the hill and drowned themselves in in, in the water. And uh, I, I was always curious to see what the pig farmer thought of that. Yeah, but, he must uh, have been real disappointed. Yeah, I don't know if he ever uh, was made whole or not. But uh, in any case, uh, yeah, there are, there are some fascinating things. And as far as what he understood he was dealing with, I think there are hints that he was very aware of a sort of a multiversal uh, thing in, in, in reality. As a matter of fact, the, the, the farther back you look, the more aware people seem to be yes. of uh, the idea of multiple worlds. Uh, the Andaman Islanders, because I researched this for another book, the Andaman and Nicobar Islanders of the Indian Ocean, the San and Khoisan Bushmen, uh, and particularly uh, the uh, uh, Australian Aboriginals, uh, one of whom I spent some time with in 1979, and said, yeah, this is, this is what we do. Uh, that We go into worlds where something is needed, and, and we bring it back, and voila, there it is. He used other, other terms. But I think Jesus had an awareness of that, because everybody did, <clears throat> who had connections with a, ancient religions, and uh, Judaism especially, and even Christianity. They have, have a lot of awareness of some ancient roots, they may have come out of pagan religions, but the religions always influence each other. So yes. I'm not. So I, I, I think he had an awareness. He was dealing with something beyond um, the labels that we today would use. What about positive entities? I've got as many positive entities in my life as I do negative, maybe more. Especially oh, yeah. led by my wife. Who we yeah, had yeah. We, we had a family gathering over the weekend. We went to the Grand Canyon, and Anne came with us, and we had a load of fun. She's very obvious when she's with us, with the whole That's family. Wonderful. She loves being with the family, and it's just part of our life. So yeah, same thing with my mother. Yeah, but not your dad. Yeah. No, uh, he is present, but on a very, very high level or different level, at least. Um, of course, again, that was a long, a long time ago. It wouldn't, doesn't really make any difference. Excuse me. Is that the <clears throat> thing do you think is reincarnation? Well, I think in a sense, maybe, but if there's no past in any objective sense, how can they have past lives? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, if, if but, the block <clears throat> universe theory is correct, absolutely nothing is lost. And no, we, not at all. And we know there's something to it simply because we can look at it in, through a telescope and see into the past very easily. 
We've just been looking a lot in the Webb telescope and seeing 12 billion years into the past, almost to the beginning of time. So, and, and if we could capture enough light, we could see every single detail. Nothing is lost. And that's so true. When you go into the past, it's sort of an illusion, but it's what I call a real illusion. Well, I mean, the, the, the fact that we, uh, I believe it's a fact that we have different facets of ourselves living in <clears throat> elsewhere and else when in, in parallel universes that to us would be, you know, 1950 or 1835 or, 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 or 2935. You know, uh, I always will uh, make it a point to talk to regression therapists, people who would hypnotize you and bring you back to your, quote, past lives. And I'll say, do you ever encounter someone who gives you a, a year in the future or some kind of uh, date that you don't recognize? <clears throat> and sure enough, they'll almost always say, funny you should say that. Last week, somebody told me it was the 28th century or, or the fifth century BC or something like that, or used a combination of letters and numbers for a date that I didn't even recognize. And they describe completely alien worlds from time to time. So I think, again, everything is out there. Reincarnation uh, would be more, if this is true, is would be more uh, parallel lives or simultaneous lives. And uh, regression therapists are beginning to notice this. And if you talk to them about simultaneous lives, they very often will know what you're talking about now. Well, there are all kinds of different opinions about it, and that's why I asked you for yours. Yeah. Um, and I knew yours would be very evolved and um, uh, very different. Now, one of the things you mentioned in the book is Stockholm Syndrome. And I have been accused by people in the, in the, in the government uh, of having Stockholm Syndrome, that there's nothing good out there that is all evil and it is all it wants our destruction and we have to fight against it at all costs at every level and they include in that uh technology and paranormal responses uh exorcism or whatever may may work and that i am to be avoided by everyone on the inside because i have stockholm syndrome and i am playing footsie with evil aliens so when I saw in your book the, the word Stockholm Syndrome, I wanted to ask you about it. What do you think sure. about getting into uh, a, 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 what feels like a positive relationship with something that's actually very much evil and does not have your best interests at heart? Well, I've seen this since the Barber case. And, of course, the syndrome being you begin to uh, relate to and uh, – uh, fall in line with your captors, you know, and, and sympathize with them. But in the Barber case and uh, subsequent cases of uh, uh, possession, particularly, but also uh, poltergeist situations where there is a, a particular victim, such as Marcy in the Bridgeport case 74, there is a tacit approval on this part. I, I have not seen an entity go in and literally take over a person. There was a cooperation there. Ben and I believe that it, that it's because of a, an identity point that is found, where and this gets really wild, where the possessor and the the possessed 
find the place where they are already one in the multiverse. In other words, uh, Barbara is the parasite and the parasite is Barbara. All possibilities being possible, there is an identity point there. And that's how the thing gets in. And particularly someone who is down and out, ill, uh, has has had a uh, life they consider to be a failure, will appreciate the attention from a cosmic being of some kind. They they won't understand what it is and what it's trying to do, but uh, they feel their ego is boosted. And that's a powerful um, energy that, that can influence your thinking. So I think that that the Stockholm Syndrome itself in, in a political or social sense is really the same thing. But I have never seen a case where these things have happened uh, and the person has not kind of liked it. Marcy in the case uh, in 74, all these police officers, journalists in the house, uh, a life where she was very, very much overwhelmed by her parents' concern uh, was a good thing for her. So, so she thought. So I think that, yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm talking about. So we have a situation where people, in a sense, may be the parasites yeah. themselves. They may be what is, you know, that's very interesting because Jeff Kripal, who's my co-author on Supernatural and a close friend, and who, by the way, is hoping to get into contact with you. I don't recall if I put you two in contact or not yet. Have I? No, not yet. No. Okay. Well, no, I, I would welcome that. Yeah, good, because I'll, I'll do that as soon as I hang up. Um, and perhaps we'll have Jeff and uh, Paul back on the show again together to have a three-way discussion about all this stuff at some later time, because he's got a lot of fascinating ideas also. He's one of the most skilled academic researchers in this field in the world. Now, um, this is, but let's, let's go back to this multiverse idea again, because there's something there that's, to me, uh, absolutely fascinating and I'm, i want to get back to the levitations you've seen quite a few here and I mean, there it's not yeah. just barbara but there's all kinds of levitations mentioned in the book yeah and what is happening is is you said that there was an electrical effect but there's something very unusual happening that would cause someone to rise up off the ground and what could it be? And why does it happen? Is it that they're standing or sitting somewhere else in another universe and they kind of intersect in some way? And that's why you feel this electrical feeling. It's kind of like a short circuit. Well, the, there are two points on this, Whitley. One is that I'm thinking of that refrigerator, too. You've got to be 300 pounds. Yeah, oh, wait, wait. we got to back up here. The refrigerator, okay. folks. He's gotta, you got to tell us the refrigerator story. Then we'll go back into theory. Okay. Tell us the refrigerator uh, story. It's a great one. November 1974, Bridgeport, Connecticut, the, the famous poltergeist case right. uh, with Ed Lorraine Warren involved and me and uh, Father Bill Charbonneau. You, which we've and, talked uh, about. Were, we, we have, yeah. But we haven't and, talked uh, about the refrigerator. Right. right. Firefighters, police officers standing there with me. And this happened on several occasions. 
it's in the actual police reports that the refrigerator levitated. And uh, looking back on that, uh, I think that uh, whether it was that or whether it was uh, the, the girl Barbara levitating out of the wheelchair, that sort of thing, that uh, we have a term that we had to coin called overwash. And when you have parallel worlds in close proximity, I think you get paranormal stuff happening because the laws of physics differ and a physicist will say this who believes in it this way from one world to another. When you have an overwash of energy, it might be very temporary. The refrigerator might have been weightless according to the laws of physics of the world is doing the overwashing. So um, I think that, that that is one possibility. The other point is I don't know if I actually don't think that entities are actually doing the lifting, except on one or two occasions, because I didn't feel anything present. I think that it's uh, the, 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 the analogy I always use is if you're running to answer the door in your house and you run past a table with a couple of papers on it, the wind you stir up will knock the papers off the table. Right. You didn't deliberately do that, but the conditions you created or that allowed you to manifest did that. Okay, so uh, I think that we're dealing with uh, overwashes of different worlds with different laws of physics. So what you're saying then is that when a world intersects with our world in some way, in this kind of, there's this sort of static effect between them, and it has different laws of physics, and oh, we're, can, we're, yeah. Uh, can have. Well, interestingly enough, we've always believed, and this is there have been scientific experiments involving the light from quasars from one end of the universe to the, the other, and we found that that light functioned the same way in the double slit experiment from both ends of the universe, suggesting that the laws of physics are consistent across the whole universe. But now the Webb telescope is beginning to send us back images that suggest that even in this universe, the laws of physics may not be consistent across the whole universe. And this feels very theoretical, but it's not very theoretical because the laws of physics govern how every single thing we see and do happens and what we see. So could there be other universes where they can manipulate this they have technology and or skills that enable them to move easily between universes now having said that i'm going in a funny direction but my listeners like that that's i've been doing this for a long time i'm going to go back to your bigfoot experience which we touched on but didn't go into can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because I think that might be what we're talking about right now. I think you're right. Yes. Uh, well, it was a brilliant moonlit night. It was a Friday night, September 16th, 2016. I had my, my truck. Uh, there's a field I like to sit in when we're there. And I was up there for about three hours. So my light, my eyes were very used to the dark. We had gotten some pictures of some strange lights in the sky. So I had my camera set up for that. And it's like, Paul, you should realize that, you know, after 50 years of this, that, that what happens is not what you expect. So sure enough, I glanced to the right. It was kind of chilly, so the driver's side window was closed. But I remember the huge legs about 150 feet away, maybe 200, 
moving up and down the knees, the, the brown fur, again, moon, brilliant moonlight. And the head was bent as if looking for something in the grass. So Don, I'm looking at friggin' Bigfoot. So I take a IR shot, infrared shot out of the, the, the window that's closed and it was closed, so no heat signature. So I, I went to get out and my phone rings. It's my wife. So turn off the phone from now on, Paul. And I said, I'm in the <laughs> middle. I'm in the middle of a Bigfoot sighting. I said, what? <laughs> I love it. And uh, my ringtone was the theme from Lord of the Rings. So that had gone blasting out over the field. So by the time I got out there, it was gone. Now uh, there's a sequel to this. Uh, there was. Um, th- this is a, a not a wilderness. It's a rural area, so the houses are few and far between. But there was a house on the other side of the hill. And uh, we were at the neighborhood meeting the next night, and I described this experience. Uh, and I also had seen a flashlight or some kind of light in a tree on the other side of the field. And when I mentioned that, right after the Bigfoot thing, a hand went up, and it was a woman named Melissa who lived in the house on the other side of the field. She said, that light, that was my son and me. We had just gotten back from the store, and we heard something big moving through that field while I was seeing it. Wow. And they went up there. And I said, why were you shining lights in the trees? He said, sometimes they're in the trees. So we did find the next morning, Shane Simmer and I looked, and we found the path of something big on two feet that had moved through the grass. It was dry. There weren't any tracks. But uh, where do these things come from and go to in an area like this? Again, it's not a wilderness area. It's rural. A lot of farms. Uh, woodlots, maybe 10, 15 acres at the most. Where do they go? Where do they come from? And uh, a number of people like Linda Godfrey, the great researcher of cryptids, would agree with us that these are perhaps multiversal creatures who um, have the same um, modus operandi of going from world to world to, to find food. Maybe Simple they, as that. Maybe they've evolved this as, an, as a uh, survival mechanism. Because Perhaps, being able yeah. to cross into another universe would be an excellent way to get away from a predator. If the predator yeah, didn't have that ability, you'd just disappear on them. Well, I live in Rhode Island, so small you can't hide from anybody. So yeah, that that would be yeah really good, including politicians. So and Love Lovecraft country too. Oh yes, yep. He was, he was a distant cousin of mine. Well, fact, that's but... beginning to explain a few things. <laughs> he was a very, very unusual. H.P. Lovecraft was one of my favorite authors for many years. Uh, I wrote a book called The Forbidden Zone. I knew another author, Robert Block, who'd written Psycho, mm. and we were shooting The Breeze one time. Uh, I didn't know him well, but we were we worked together a few times. And uh, he said, I wonder if we could write a, someone could write a full-length Lovecraftian novel. And I thought, I could do that. And so I said, I could. And he said, okay, it's a challenge then, Whitley, because I can't do it. See if you can do it. And I wrote a novel called, I wrote The Forbidden Zone. And what it is, is about another universe that is dying in the past and wants to break through into the present. And it is, of course, the old ones of, the uh, Lovecraft mythology. So 
Could there be something real like that? Something that wants to come in here, not necessarily from the past, we've already discussed that, but something that is trying to come in here for the purpose of feeding on us? Is that what this is about? It sounds like earlier that's what, what kind of what you were saying. That's, that's what I believe is happening. And I think it's important to stand that you have to realize that we are not living in a quantum leap. You know, the old show, that you know, you, there'd be this bubbling leap from one to another. There seems to be constant interaction yes. between worlds within what Ben and I call the world family worlds with very similar laws of physics, but things are just a little bit different. You know, how many times do you come in, you put your keys down on the table, I, I use this in the book, and, you know, you turn around, you answer the phone, you turn around, and the keys are at the other end of the table. Things like little glitches in the fabric of space-time. And then, you know, within a few minutes, you ask, this is one of those things, you forget about it. But when you go and, you know, something is playing Frisbee with your grandmother's fine china, that you remember. But I think we have little examples of multiversal interaction all the time. I think so, too. And I think that other uh, entities in other universes have evolved the ability to move between universes. I've had the yeah. experience personally of moving into physically into other universes a number of times. And my listeners know all about that, so I'm not going to go into it now. But, folks, if you do don't know what I'm talking about, just put a comment in the comments section. I read all the comments on the site and I will expand on it for you. I'll even give you some book references. Okay. Um, now the exorcist film, uh, uh, John Nicola, was that his name? Father John Nicola was it? Yes. Involved? Father John Nicola Jesuit. Yeah. Yeah. And you were too, you were, you were somehow involved in that project. Or no? Oh uh, no, not really. I just I was involved with him. You, because with I, him. I never. Well, tell us uh, yeah. about his experience with that and what he came to believe. He well, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He he did he did regret. He was the technical. That that, that film uh, came out in uh, December of seventy three, and I I uh, met him shortly after that through my brother who was a priest in Washington D.C. right across from the 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 National Shrine where. Father Nicola was the assistant director, you know, a very anonymous job, but actually he was a leading exorcism expert in the country in the Catholic church at the time. So uh, my brother introduced us. I think he might've regretted doing so later on, but uh, Nicola and I would meet frequently. And he did tell me that rumors of weird things happening on the set of the exorcist were true. And he said he regretted ever doing it, regretted it to his dying day. So that that's all he told me about it because we would discuss cases and different uh, things and he'd give advice and that sort of thing and we corresponded all the time. But he uh, he said uh, it was a weird experience uh, being involved with that film and he regretted it. It's because of the the. Do you think entities had followed him? He never said that. I doubt that they would dare, knowing him. Um, because belief is a very powerful thing. And whether they're demons or not in any strict theological sense, they seem to have limitations of what they can do to you if you don't let them. You know what I'm saying? I, so I know some of them who can't tell the truth. And I think it's, I don't think it's because they're evil. I think it's because of the difference between the world they are from and the world we are from. There's this, 
there's some kind of vibrational disconnection. Uh, these are the ones that the military people think are demons. Uh, well, that's it. Um, in, I ran into one in Indiana one time that would apologize to its host for having to live the way it lived. And people often ask, could these be humans that have uh, transformed somehow into something that's totally non-human? And I said, I suppose theoretically that's possible, but I doubt it. I have never felt any humanity uh, from from them, and I and I I've felt only uh, alienness. If you well, will. listen, I can uh, I can tell you that I can assure you it is possible. I've seen it, and it's horrendous. There can be a, a human being who is evil enough in this world is fair game in other worlds, and things can be done to them that are absolutely unspeakable. I think uh, there are plenty of humans who are parasites right now. Yes. You start here. I think maybe this is the breeding ground of soul parasitism. What do you think of that? You think they're being... Uh, you put... Yeah, go ahead. Well, seeing as you put it that way, it, it makes sense. It just, I'd say I, I have never run into it myself that I know of. Okay, and I've run into a lot of them, but it's it's entirely possible. And as I say, what you say makes sense. Now, what about the good? What about living for the good? I learned in my long life with this. This has been in my life since I was a baby. Uh, and that if if you proactively live for the good, you don't just give it lip service. You make that your life, your life. The your relationship with the entities changes and suddenly you do not have that awful stuff in your life anymore. No, I agree. Uh, we have in our, in our travels as if you will, through the multiverse, uh, as it were, uh, Ben and I have encountered a number of, uh, very, very positive entities. And I describe one in the book, um, in, uh, I encountered it in an attic in, uh, New York state near Buffalo, and uh, the people, of course, when you go to a house, they'll say, oh, they are, a lot of them already know what it is. Oh, it's the guy uh, who committed suicide in the, in the garage or, or something like that, or the old lady who died in this room. And it's usually nothing of the kind. In this case, I encountered, uh, I always refer to, refer to it as an ursine figure because it had a very bear-like feel. And I actually got a photograph of this one. Uh, I usually did take photographs during the, these contact experiences, but uh, this was um, it, it, it. Very often there are language barriers. This one was speaking in a very odd form of Latin, and uh, <clears throat> I had to work out the case endings because it was very strange. But if I, I could understand what it said, it was it was very noble. the The positive energy coming off this being was incredible. Uh, I almost get teary just talking about it. It was so beautiful. Yeah, I've had this and same he experience. Was, yeah. Well, the, the, this was, a, he was on a quest, as best I could get, uh, to a place called Renthusia, which I've never heard for, heard of before or since. No. And uh, in the um, the service of, like, of this female deity who would uh, reward people or, or beings, whatever this was, it wasn't human, uh, for 
tremendous achievements in compassion and kindness. I mean, can you imagine living in a world like that? So, um, and he and he said he was encountering travelers on his presumably I was one of them, people who would you know would intersect from various parallel realities, some of whom didn't think it was that unusual to do so, and uh, this took place uh, over a number of hours, uh, over several nights, and I was able to uh, to get what I could get out of his weird Latin. And a very, very positive and very encouraging figure. Uh, many times I've encountered figures that are entirely neutral or just, uh, just as confused as I was about what we were doing in contact. Um, all kinds of different worlds, all kinds of different scenarios. Uh, people who were whose memories had failed and they didn't quite know where they were. Uh, one guy, I believe, in a hotel in Florida, and I believe I was able to talk about him committing suicide in his world. You name it, it's happened. And I think uh, we're dealing with the interaction, constant interaction of various various parallel worlds. And we ourselves pass through many in a day, I think. We can't end the show without talking about your ideas about God and how God relates to all of this. Because if this is all true and all of these universes exist, then we don't, we don't, we don't, we can hardly even begin to understand what God is or even if God exists in the sense that we understand existence. Can you talk a little bit about your ideas about God? Well, sure. Uh, they changed as my ideas about the paranormal changed. It's not quite what I learned in the seminary. I think there is definitely a God, whether it's he, she, it, or them. And <clears throat> I think that um, it is the power that walks serenely behind all reality. And uh, I'm often attacked by people, uh, particularly on the air, for not sharing their religious beliefs because they hear about my seminary background. So, and I will say, the, the theology behind the creation is God's love, however you define God, was infinite. It had to be expressed. It exploded into the creation. And if his love is infinite, the creative power was infinite, why wouldn't the, the universe be a multiverse? Infinite in all possibilities, all outcomes, uh, which, if you look at it, would, would probably be a, a huge, elegant whole. And just because we can't see it, if it's not for our convenience, oh, God is bad, or what are we doing here and all this, maybe it's just because we're not there yet as far as being aware of it. It could be a perfect creation, elegant uh, and whole and everything right there. So that, that, that that's a very quick and simple way to explain it. Uh, I, I happen to think that that's my point of view. You know, uh, my great-grandmother, who he believed this was a perfect creation always, used to say, this is before I knew, I did not know her. She died in 1947, but my mother, of course, did know her. And uh, Nana used to say that she had in her country house uh, 
a phrase of Robert Browning's, God's in his heaven, all's right in the wor- with the world over the archway between the living and dining rooms. It's still there to this day, in fact. And she would always say when the her family wanted to take it down because of the wars and so forth that were going on in the 20th century, she would say, no, it's we don't ever take it down because it's always true. Everything comes back to balance, always, in God's yes. universe, always. The in and she was an Emersonian believer in Emerson. She knew Emerson's work, and he's got an essay called "Compensation" about nature always returning to balance, and it does. And in that sense, you're right. The world is perfect. Yeah. I think so. You and I are together to get day for the first time. I've had such a good time. A really, it was. uh, Oh God, what a profound experience talking to you. Well, uh, despite some of our subjects, it was uh, absolutely delightful. Well, I I think that it's important to talk about these subjects and get used to them. I mean, you know, we all have positive and negative entities in our lives, and uh, none of us really know what to do about it. Um, we try to encourage the positive as best we can and discourage the negative. Where from here do you go? Oh, no, no. Before I forget, I want to ask about your son. You two of you have been working together for a long time. And tell us a little bit about Ben and hope maybe we'll have him on the show sometime. I would love to have him. You know, it's a little inconvenient because he's at work now, but uh, tell us a little bit about him and about your work together. I'm so envious because my son is a completely different area of life. Yeah. Well, I'm really blessed with him. He um, used to come along with his older brother to uh, um, book sales and lectures, and he'd, they'd man the book table. But uh, farther than that, I was always curious as whether blood relatives have the same reactions to paranormal stimuli, as it were. And uh, Ben, from the day he could talk, would be talking about parallel lives. And I was fascinated by this, and I I said, he's born for this. And by the time he was 13, uh, my wife and I had a long talk about whether we should let him join the work, and he did. And uh, people get a kick out of the uh, this Connecticut Litchfield case where he's uh, standing there with our very first video camera in 2005. And he's this little, little guy of 13. And uh, he has been by my side in any kind of emergency in the show for almost 15 years. And uh, I just, I, I, I love him to death. I'd have him by my side anytime. And it has brought us a sort of lifelong unit. He's, he's 30 now and married. He lives about 12 miles away, but we're still very close. And, um, but his gifts are very different. He is very much experiential. I, I am too, I guess, but I try to keep, uh, my feet more in the scholarly and uh, data kind of driven approach. Although you never know from, from the book we've been talking about, but Ben is just, uh, yeah, no, he, not at all. He, he, he's my other half in this, my partner in the paranormal, as we say. Well, partner in the paranormal, I think you've got more than one partner in the paranormal in the world. There's a whole yes. bunch of us rolling down this particular path, or are we falling off a cliff? It's hard to know which. Uh, it's been a pleasure, 
And the book, folks, is Dancing Past the Graveyard. The website is behindtheparanormal.com, where you can listen to a lot more of this great material and do get the book, Dancing Past the Graveyard. But before we go, there's one thing I forgot to ask you. If you've got another couple of seconds, why Dancing Past the Graveyard instead of Whistling Past It? Well, I think the ultimate message is is one uh, that's very, very positive. Yeah. Whistling, you know, it's it's good, but dancing is very positive. Uh, that that was the the intended uh, image I was trying to to project. <clears throat> well, thank you very much for being with us, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, Whitley. It's uh, it's always great. We'll look forward to having you on our show. Absolutely. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>